0: the Feminist Coffee Hour Podcast. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com on Twitter at FemCoffeePod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth and Karen is working on grading papers right now. My guest is Alexis, a fellow mom from Northeast Queens, an attorney and community activist. How are you tonight, Alexis? I'm good. I'm tired. It's been a day, but you know, working mom. It's been a day, it's been a week, it's been a month. (laughs) It's
1: been a year, it's been
0: a cycle, right? Um, We are recording this, I always like to say, because it comes out a a week or two later on the evening of July 7th. So we've gotten some really interesting results in the New York City primaries, and that's going to be the main thing that we talk about tonight. It looks like the Democratic nominee for mayor is going to be Eric Adams. What do you think about that? I'm sort of
1: excited for a new mayoralty. And Adams was not my candidate of choice. But I think he has a lot of respect within the community. And I think that one of the things that progressives maybe haven't really keyed into is that you know he's been a very longtime voice of police reform and has a lot of trust within various communities, and especially communities of color. And, you know, I'm optimistically hopeful that, you know, a former NYPD officer might be the person who can really help us enact the police reforms that make the most sense for our community. So I'm I'm actually, you know, excited about that. I think it's very interesting with ranked choice, you know, some people have made this observation that there were very few races that came out differently than election night, which I thought was interesting that, you know, when ranked choice was said and done for the most part. I think with the exception of maybe one council race, pretty much everybody was where we were on election night. And the mayor's race was such a wild ride. I mean, between Morales and Yang, I'm excited to get to the main show. But I also think that it really hasn't dawned on me the intensity and circus that will surround a Sleewa. Adams general election. Because although I think the chances of Curtis Lewa winning in a democratic city like New York is very slim, the Republican debates where Bob Hart really keenly observed where no candidate could observe the no-prop rules, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I think there's gonna be a lot of performative nonsense with both candidates. And I don't know if you saw on social media, Eric Adams made a whole big thing about getting his ear pierced because he promised he would. And you know, I think there's gonna be a lot of, you know, sort of nonsense politics in the general.
0: Yeah, election day was an interesting time for me. We'll get to the city council races later. I had Justine Carr on the podcast back in December. The title of the episode was Justine Carr's The Future of the Democratic Party. I still believe that she did not win. Uh, Linda Lee won and she's cool like congrats but voting for mayor I was not happy with (laughs) the choices I was kind of like anybody but Andrew Yang and that's similarly how I felt in in the presidential primary (laughs) last year so going in anybody but Yang and I was really more for president anybody but Yang Klobuchar or Biden got Biden so
1: yeah I think it was interesting for me because I was definitely in the anybody but Yang camp. But I think we would be remiss to dismiss how excited so many of our community members were about Yang. and what what was that? That was UBI because I don't think people really understood the UBI as he modified it once the consultants got a hold of him. But excitement about you is, bi and excitement about positivity right excitement about you know having a nice guy so with the mayor's race i think yang was completely unqualified and in some respects reflected trumpism in its worst sort of cults of personality and the elevation of someone who has appeared to have made money giving them qualifications to lead us politically is a very dangerous thing Actually, what happened is I am not in Jasleen's district. I'm in District 19, but I ran into Steve Behar right before I voted. And as a direct result of my conversation with Steve Behar, I was so annoyed and PO'd that I refused to rank any man for mayor because my whole conundrum was whether or not I ranked Adams in the event that it came down to Yang and Adams. And did I want to stay out of that race? And I ended up ranking no men because Steve was so dismissive of his sexism. And I should say, Steve, I consider a dear friend and colleague, and I do really care about him, but it's amazing to me how dismissive he is about some of my perspectives about his sexism. So. And I've told him that, so he shouldn't be surprised.
0: Yeah, I totally echo those feelings. I tweeted out a a couple of weeks ago. It's hard for me to express how much I missed the six months or so when I thought Morales and Stringer were both good, maybe even excellent choices. Ignorance was truly bliss. And we had Diane Morales on this podcast. It was like a fascinating conversation. She had her own ideas about UBI. Like it was super exciting to talk to her. And it was before all this stuff about the mistreatment of her staff came out. And before all the well, stuff about people trying to unionize and I think though, you know, Morales and Stringer in different
1: respects are case studies of the left holding its own to maybe I'm gonna say it impossibly high standards, in that I think at the end of the day, Stringer's handling of the allegations was disqualifying, but the allegations themselves, especially once you put them under scrutiny. I don't think should have been disqualifying. If we're being intellectually honest, we've all stepped in it. We've all done bad things. We've all hurt people. We've all said things or stepped in it. And I think when you're called in, the important thing is to acknowledge the hurt and listen and try to figure out how to do better. And you know, I don't think Stringer did that. And I don't think Morales did that. But I also think that it's very interesting because a lot of established Democrats are sort of using the Morales campaign as, you know, evidence of like, look, see the left—they're totally ungovernable and they'll eat their own—and
0: you know, we shouldn't have campaigns around them. Yeah, it's, it's hard to know. Yeah, what what the lessons are, what we're going to think about this like a year from now or or two years from now. And I agree with what you're saying. Like, you know, were they held to too high standards and.
1: Well, I don't know. Did you read the um letter from the 15-year-old intern of the Morales campaign? No, I didn't.
0: No, I didn't. But so, I do know someone so, who worked on the campaign who was fine. Yeah, yeah, so
1: there was a letter that was written by a 15-year-old volunteer who was sort of saying that they were completely exploited and you know, abused. And you know, that was as a parent very upsetting to me because I think it's the adult's responsibility to take care of children in any circumstance and young people in any circumstance, but especially campaigns. But at the same time, it's like campaigns are a great time to volunteer. And, you know, how you thread the needle between labor abuses and paying people fairly. And as someone who isn't a political operative, right, I always want to be a volunteer. Like I'm not looking for a job. I'm not looking to make money. I'm looking to sort of help my community. And I think that the way some of those arguments got framed by the Morales Union were a little unhelpful. And I think that the thing they did accomplish was sort of taking down what I viewed as the most progressive candidate in the race. And and there was a lot of revisiting of, you know, oh, she shouldn't have been endorsed. We shouldn't have elevated her like that. But, you know, everybody makes their choices and does their diligence and picks their candidate. And sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong, right? Cause I, I mean, I have to say I was a big fan of D- Diane Morales. I remain a big fan of Diane Morales. I really hope that this is not the end of her political
0: career. Possible lessons learned, but I feel like it's gonna take some time to figure out what those are. I think from a feminist perspective though, I think women
1: get held to a higher standard of when there is discord or problems in their campaign. That it's their lack of managerial skills where similar discord happens within male campaigns. It's like, well, you know, he's the manager, he's high pressure, he, you know, he thrives off the tension. I know there was a lot of discourse around Hillary Clinton's campaign in that respect. It was framed as the leaders of the campaign aren't aligned, where, you know, I think male managers get away with a lot more um, tolerance for toxicity in the workplace where women are held to a higher standard.
0: Yeah, I think that was one of the most interesting things that you said about this. We were on another call about something else and someone asked you like which way you were leaning for the primary and you said, well, I know I'm ranking with three women and I'm not sure after that. And I was like, wow, that's a great way to think about it. And like until then, I hadn't really thought much about Wiley or Garcia. And then this was even before the New York Times endorsed Garcia. This was before AOC endorsed Wiley, and I was like, I like that way of thinking about it, you know?
1: Well, and also I think with Catherine Garcia, I think there's not enough talked about her race because the thing that amazed me about Catherine Garcia earlier in the race, and I'm glad that she got her due, was that she was such a competent manager. I don't align with her on a lot of things politically, but I think that when you're voting and thinking about public office, there's lots of ways to view criteria In that, you know, competent manager who doesn't align with me politically might be an okay choice for some folk. And I was very offended by the whole gang statements about, you know, how he would have Catherine in his administration where she was far more experienced, far more competent. And it just, you know, I mean, I think every woman has been in an office situation where it's like, oh, I'm going to be expected to do all the work and some guy is going to take the credit. Mm -hmm. Most women have been in that position. And I was really glad to see that Garcia at least got her due in terms of the race, you know? And I think it's also really interesting to see what would have happened if Scrid Stringer hadn't been put out of the race, you know, because I think that there were a lot of reasons why Wiley was sort of a weak
0: candidate. And I mean, he was know, looking really good in the polls before that accusation came out. So there's no way to know.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's also telling too how many people just sort of deserted him, you know. And I think that that's something that I look at. And one of the reasons why I like being an activist on the level that I am is that you get to wa- observe people over years and years. And say what you will, and this is a different race, but Donovan Richards and Constantinides are real friends and they ran against each other. But at the end of the day, they care about their
0: community and, you know, sometimes character matters. So if you don't know, they ran against each other last year for Queensborough, yeah, president, for Queensborough and president and Donovan Richards won, and then he just was reelected this year for the full term. Some of his tweets made the <laughs> yeah. news. Maybe Elizabeth, you give some context for that. Sure. So there were three people in the race. Donovan Richards, the incumbent, Jimmy Van Bremmer, a uh, very liberal city councilman, and Elizabeth Crowley, who is the niece of Joe Crowley, who's famous for losing to AOC. And basically, from my perspective, what it kind of came down to is how much you want to reform the police. And like I said, my whole tunnel vision for the past two or three months was on my city council race. But what I did see from the Queensborough president race was just kind of like Elizabeth Crowley is pro-police. Donovan Richards wants to reform the police. That was the basic message that I was receiving. The Ron Kim endorsement of Jimmy Van Bremmer was very interesting to me because I was like, I wonder like what that's about. Like, is he doing it to split it up? Is he doing it because he sees something with Donovan Richards that he doesn't like? Like, what doesn't he like about the incumbent? Like. That's interesting and I really trust Ron Kim's judgment. So I did rank Jimmy first and and Donovan Richards second. You know, ultimately Donovan Richards won and he tweeted out like, we beat your racist ass at Elizabeth Crowley. And that's the thing that happened in New York City. Yeah, Last night, I mean, tonight, today, yeah, happened. you know,
1: I found the Queensborough president race really interesting this time around, because again, Donovan had ran for this previously and didn't even serve a full term. I think maybe I'm a little biased because I really like Donovan Richards on a personal level, but I kind of felt like absent something horrible that Donovan had done to kind of challenge him when you just lost to him, was a little disheartening to me because I tend to not like politics for politics sake. I don't like the game of politics. I like community building and, you know, especially Jimmy Van Bramer had dropped out of the race for personal reasons and then to sort of challenge him. And I think Jimmy Van Bramer maybe had a perspective of I'm not the Rebney guy, where Donovan, I think, is a little more entrenched with the Democratic establishment. I think he's a little more entrenched with real estate dollars and development dollars. But Elizabeth Crowley's success kind of surprises me. And I think that one of the things that's frustrating to me in terms of how to talk about racism in Northeast Queens is When someone like Elizabeth Crowley sends out mailers with Donovan's picture on it as a black man and says, I'm the safety candidate, I'm the pro-police candidate. That is really playing on the fact that white people's notions of safety are rooted in whiteness. Vicki Palladino is a Proud Boy aligned council person who is running in district Yankee. And she's famous for sort of sending off bombs of you know incendiary rhetoric so what i'm saying is in my community in northeast queens i think there's a real high tolerance for the dog whistles of oh we want a safe community in a way that walking into a space and saying well i'm for a safe community is dripping with racism in certain contexts
0: and but, i think specifically uh just to say anti-black racism yes. because there are uh, people yes. who yes. are yes. latino who are asian who yes. will fall for that yes Yes,
1: absolutely. And you're right to point that out because we also have a lot of problems with anti Asian racism. We have a very diverse, complex community here in Northeast Queens. But I think that one of the things that is really, really problematic about Donovan's kind of going off is it sort of reinforces a lot of negative stereotypes about. Black men, quite frankly, you know what I mean? In that I know Donovan and I know that he wasn't saying like, literally, I want to physically assault Elizabeth Crowley. But at the same time, without having some sort of real smoking gun of a overtly hateful comment to point to, I think that a lot of that my neighbors have been clutching their pearls saying, well, what did she do that was racist? We don't see any racism. What she, you know, and for her to- Just, just rolled my eyes saying, really
0: hard and unintentionally.
1: Yeah, no, it, it was almost audible, people, if you didn't hear <laughs> Elizabeth rolling her eyes. But also to add, there was follow-up articles in the Daily News and some of the local outlets about this exchange, about the fact that Donovan wasn't gracious and I felt compelled to t- tweet out, we don't need to be gracious to racists. And that's a really good you know, point.
0: And it, honestly, really and it doesn't matter what Elizabeth Crowley feels in her heart. Running a racist campaign is running a racist campaign and does much more damage than any feelings that you might have.
1: Here's the problem. And, and it's the problem that I have with Steve Behar. It always centers whiteness. And the white feelings, so the conversation doesn't get centered on why Donovan, a committed public service, felt compelled to call out her racism in such a confrontational and public way, okay, in that he must have been enduring a lot, and we're not having a conversation about him. And again, I'm guilty of it too, right, because it's always like, well, what do the white people think? And how is this going to play in Northeast Queens? And what are the white ladies saying? And what are the white folks saying? And in a way that it's like, F them, seriously, because their racism is super harmful. And the, the, the toxicity around Donovan has been bad for the community. And the fact that if you look at the map, and if you guys have a chance to check it out, you should, the map of the Queensborough presence race was extremely racialized. It was literally white people, black people. And again, I shouldn't erase all of the Asian folk and Latinos and other people in our w- wonderfully diverse borough, but it was very much along racial lines in that it's like Northeast Queens was Crowley country, Southeast Southern Queens was Donovan, And then we had the Socialist Communist Republic of of Western Queens, which eventually broke for for Donovan, as they should have. And I think that we have to do a lot of work around race in Northeast Queens. And I think I've gotten a little bit of flack for saying, like, don't go there. Don't make us uncomfortable. But, you know, I think there needs to be a lot more listening. And one of the things that I've observed in the last couple years is that I'm in a lot of white spaces that are, like, we don't have any people of color and we don't know why. And it's like, yeah, but if you've had meetings and people of color show up to one meeting and then don't come back, I think we have an obligation to reach out to those people of color and say, hey, what did we do? Because again, there's this like pearl clutching, oh, I'm a good person. And that's the other thing. I think in Northeast Queens, especially, racism gets talked in personalized terms of like a good person or a bad person and not enough in terms of systems systems of government systems of finance systems of banking in that we are all living and swimming in racist water and air and it affects us all and it affects us all negatively and i think that one of the things that i've learned in the last couple of years is we really need to be centering the perspectives of the people that are the most hurt in the conversations. And I think that the thing that annoys me about the Donovan controversy is that it's going to be all about Elizabeth and her reaction, and it's not going to really center on the pain that Donovan felt because of the way that he, you know, chose to express himself. But that being said, I don't think there's a way he could have expressed himself you Know, like Colin Kaepernick kneeling, you know what I mean? It's like he couldn't stand, he couldn't kneel, he couldn't do
0: anything. A couple of ways we could go here. Do you want to talk a little bit about the general election for mayor? Or do you want to go into city council? I don't really have much you... to say, about Adams <laughs> okay. versus Lima except
1: I, I, a question. I don't want to get me. into too much trouble. I, I do not want to <laughs> get into too much trouble, but given his love of cats. <laughs> My question would be- Well, wait, wait, we have if, to
0: talk about this. Like the district attorney of Queens, like for people who aren't listening, like most of the people listening to the okay. podcast are in yep. New York City. And but also there that's are people from other parts the, of the country right. and other countries. Before, before I say yeah. this, I feel like if we were submitting this plot
1: line to Rhonda Shimes for an episode of Scandal, mm-hmm. she'd be like, no, that is
0: too crazy and out there. So the district attorney of the borough of Queens is Melinda Katz who was previously the borough president of Queens. And she ran and won a very close race and beat out Tiffany Caban, who is now going to be a city councilwoman. And so Melinda Katz is our borough president. And she has some kids with... Curtis Lewa, who's the Republican, who the Republican, nominee, Republican for nominee for mayor. <laughs> <laughs> Not only the Republican nominee for mayor,
1: <laughs> the head of the Guardian Angels, which is a notorious vigilante organization. So during the Queensboro DA's race, I don't think she got any questions or fielding about vigilantism and the guardian angels and what her thoughts were about them. I may be wrong, but I don't remember seeing anything. But my question is, does Melinda Katz endorse Curtis <laughs> Lewa for mayor? My sense is that she's a very, very smart woman and she's just gonna
0: stay out of it, but- Watch for who Melinda Katz endorses for mayor. <laughs> Because, I mean, again, as as a mother, I just, I don't
1: know how you explain to your kids that you didn't endorse their dad for mayor. <laughs> I just feel like that's got to be a really awkward conversation, or maybe not. Maybe, maybe I'm just projecting. Yeah. It's having so an that's interesting
0: my little- uh, understanding of politics, which I am going to get into a little bit. But yeah. for a city council, we're just going to talk about two races. You want to talk about 19 or 23 first?
1: Let's talk about 23 first, I think. So this
0: is where I I live. live. This is where Jasleen Carr lost and Linda Lee won. i interrupt you right there because I
1: think that one of the things about having a feminist perspective on things Mm -hmm. is to get away from the binaries, get away from the all or nothings, the win or losing in that I don't think on any level you could describe Jasleen's campaign as, Anything less than in a tremendous success from an organizing perspective, from an awareness perspective, in terms of making it very clear that people in the district care about progressive issues and leftist issues. So that the thing that is un- not unfortunate, but I think Linda Lee kind of got painted, pushed more to the right than she may be in actuality because of Jasline I mean, I hope Candace she moves
0: back left. That would be nice.
1: But what I'm saying is I think the idea that Jasleen and her block of voters isn't going to be influential in the city council and in District 23 going forward is not amazing. And I think it's also worth noting that Queens will have majority women on the council right no that is very
0: special that linda lee will be the first woman and the first person of color to represent council district 23 and i definitely but, congratulate her on that but
1: yeah. also the idea that the future is female mm-hmm. but it is not necessarily cisgender heterosexual white female correct 100 percent. because actually i was going to say i don't think any of the women on the council from Queens are heterosexual white women, that they're all LGBTQ or people of women of color. I think that's an amazing thing. And I think that's pretty cool.
0: Two ways you might've heard about my neighborhood in the larger news are one your friend, Steve Behar getting just, I think three articles about him in the daily news and the mean things he wrote on Facebook and the challenges he issued to people. He was, he was very upset about those. And, and
1: like I said, Steve is someone who's very close to my heart, so I don't want to necessarily call him out unfairly, but I did have a very deep conversation with him about what sort of frustrated him so much about some of the comments that Tammy wrote on social media. And it became very clear to me that he was really made to feel really upset about the whole mommy power thing that he was really angered by the fact that he felt he was being told as a man that he couldn't like care about education or that that wasn't his issue. And it was just really interesting to hear his perspective and that it's like, oh, Steve, so now you must have some empathy for how I feel as a woman, When there are all these spaces that I'm told that I'm not allowed to be in or have supremacy in or be a part of in that, you know, one mommy power hashtag and he lost his mind, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think that, you know, there's more to explore there about feelings of inclusion and belonging and how, when you're a person of privilege or a white person in our community, that you're not used to being told this space isn't for you, or this opportunity isn't open to you. I found that interesting and, you know, worth exploring of, you know, sort of what the perspective is, but also not focusing on how women have been cut out of conversations and cut out of, competencies course, for generations, right? And again, you know, you hear this in sexual harassment all the time, right? Like, Oh, what about this man's career? This accusations are affecting his career, and it's like, yeah. And what about the generations of women that were shut out of the workplace, or hounded out of the workplace, or had to leave the workplace because they wouldn't possibly be successful? So, you know, I was very happy that Linda and Jeslyn both beat him. Me too. <laughs> and also, <laughs> I amaz- well, also, I think it's amazing. But also, I think it's amazing that there was not more discussion of the fact that Barry wasn't running in part because he had been called in for inappropriate behavior mm-hmm. and again much like stringer totally botched the reaction to such a point that he felt that he didn't want to run again and steve was part of his team and didn't you know wasn't painted with that brush in a way that i think steve is one of the reasons why Barry wasn't able to run again
0: Right, and you know, I mean, I told a lot of my neighbors. I explained the whole thing. Like, this is why we've been having like a competitive election right now, and yeah, people didn't know. And and Barry did a good job covering that up. So I'll I'll just say that the other reason you might have heard about my neighborhood on the news in CNBC and in Bloomberg and in the Jacobin was that Stephen Ross, who is a Republican mega donor to Donald Trump, funneled hundreds of thousands of dollars. Had a pack. That had, I think, over like $1.7 million in it to attack candidates that were threatening to the real estate in- industry. But the way that they attacked those candidates were on saying that they were in favor of crime and that they were anti-Semitic. And I honestly have to say that the anti-Semitism attack on Jocelyn really landed with a lot of my neighbors. And that's unfortunate because it's not true. And because this is just a horrible thing to like, I really hope that my neighbors who didn't vote for her or her ranked her after Linda or whatever, don't actually believe that she hates Jewish people. So, because that's just, that's just not true.
1: Well, and I think that again, there's lots of conversations around hate that we need to have in our community. But I think as a leftist and as a democratic socialist and as someone who supports the human rights of Palestinians there is a contingent of people in my neighborhood who I love and care for and respect, who will always conflate any criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. And, you know, I've had to come to terms with people and just sort of say that you know me, you know that I am not a hateful person, it hurts me to think that you think I would belong to an organization or a group or support a candidate who is anti-Semitic. And I think that that conversation is one that we're going to be having ongoing. And I think also we need to really stop. I see it on Twitter all the time. There is not one person in our community that is anti-safety. There's no one saying, I want a less safe community. We have disagreements about how to get there. But I'm Brian Lehrer today, uh, and if you guys have a chance to check it out, I highly recommend it. There was a discussion on a study of young people who actually carry guns in New York City, and they do so because they don't feel safe. They carry guns because they were overwhelmingly victims of violence and trauma who feel like the society and specifically the police do not protect them. So the idea that people are carrying guns because they want to kill people is really misplaced in that, you know, we really need to come up with radical solutions to public safety. And I think the mailer was an indication that we're doing the right kind of work because folks are getting scared and they should be scared because we're doing a lot of good work here in uh, Eastern Queens with the left.
0: Yeah, it just kind of reminded me of like a different but but similar conversation I had had with a friend of mine who is in another state. And there was a huge kerfuffle about Drag Queen Story Hour. And she's like, I can explain to my kid what a drag queen is, what a gay person is, what a trans person is. I don't know how to explain this hatred. I don't know how to explain homophobia. I don't know how to explain transphobia to my child. And I was like, it's pretty deep. And I had a moment like that because these mailers were coming to my house. One day I got two of them at once and the next day I got another two. And they had Jocelyn's face on them and it was like color tinted. And my son can't read yet, but he recognized her because they've met and she was really nice to him. And he he could tell just from the tone of the mailer, something was off. He was like, what is this? Like, what's going on? And I would made that joke before about like how mailers are silent, but, but, but to my four-year-old, the message was loud and clear, like something scary, something dangerous is happening with just Like, what is this? And bad people are saying just likes bad guys is, is what I said. But like the fact that they were coming to my home made it so personal. Like it's one thing to put up advertisements and stuff like that, but the, the mailer that people got to read them and look at them and think about them and have all these emotions that they were engineered and written to have in their homes, I think also made them a lot more effective than just TV yeah. or radio or something else. And one more thing before we uh move yeah. on, I was just looking at the Jacobin and there's an article about all of the DSA candidates in New York City. And it says, it can be debated whether it's worth DSA's while to pursue the struggle for socialism in the Eastern Queens. What do you think about that, Alexis? <clears throat> <laughs> It said, but Justine's campaign demonstrated that the future may be much brighter there than one would think. So I don't know why you need the first part of that sentence because like, yeah, of course you got to fight for it.
1: And I think that one of the things that I bring to the movement is I'm a white lady. I'm I'm not a person of color, but I don't want to be an apologist for hateful racists. But even people in my neighborhood who voted for Trump I think are potential socialists. I think there's a deep sense that there is something wrong in our country, Mm -hmm. that we are not moving in the right direction, that things and our way of life is getting harder. And it's going to be a rough transition for people whose sense of America and safety are rooted in whiteness. But I think socialism is the future. And I think that it's the future everywhere. And I think if we're going to save the planet and do a bunch of things that we need to do, we need to get it together. And we need it to get it together quick, right? I agree so. with you.
0: It's interesting to me as like my journey left has been just like the most right I ever was. It was like, you know, someone who was super excited about Al Gore as like a teenager, <laughs> like a high school, yeah. high school, senior college freshman, super excited about Al Gore, like being a neo- neoliberal. But I think there are some people, especially women, especially people of color who are like a little bit skeptical of people who kind of make that huge jump from mm-hmm. the right to the left. And what steps did you skip and what steps? Oh yeah, no, no, there's a lot really of, yeah.
1: no, no. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of steps. And I think that one of the things that I hope to do in the near term is to really fight for a free and fully funded CUNY because I think that there isn't enough awareness in our community that CUNY used to be free and that one of the things that happened is it became not free once it integrated. And there's a lot of misunderstandings about the connections there that need to be drawn out.
0: Do you wanna say anything about Council District 19?
1: So Council District 19 is my heartbreak because, as we said earlier, I'm a mom and a practicing attorney, and I've gotten really good at preventing heartache and drawing boundaries in that I kind of say, look, I'm going to participate in the races where I live, and I live in District 19. And uh, Tony Avella, who was formerly our uh, state senator and a member of the IDC, was running It was very apparent to me from very early on that we needed to coalesce behind a single candidate to defeat him. Unfortunately, there were two great candidates in the form of Austin Chaffron and Richard Lee, and they kind of cannibalized each other's campaigns a little bit. It was a little disappointing to see... A lot of co-opting of leftist movements and accusations. You know, oh, Richard Lee said that Austin is too far left, and you know, Austin said, oh, well, I'm not that far left. And in a way that I kind of, in some ways, wish there had been a candidate like Jazlene who had been unapologetically leftist, right? Because I remember having this conversation with someone where I was like, a win with Kerry is worse than a loss with Dean. This is in Dean Carey, I'm dating myself. But the sense was that like Dean was really going to fight for sort of bolder issues and that we shouldn't pull our punches and we should run to the left. I still feel that sometimes, that sometimes, you know, Austin tried to like kind of sit on a fence. And I think that it's a shame because I think would have been really nice to have seen Richard and the council A couple other people were running. I was really happy to see Adriana Aviles run. Uh, She's a former NYPD officer and very active in District 26. And again, her politics and mine do not align, but I think her race was a really good example of just an everyday normal person who doesn't have a lot of money for lawyers and consultants, who's not a careerist, who's just a community member who cares, trying to get on the council. And I think that at the end of the day, We'll be better off if we have more council people like that rather than you know, lifers and careerists and people like Avella just
0: looking for a job. In my neighborhood, I have no doubt that Linda Lee will completely wipe the floor with the young, unexperienced white dude that's running. I think he's like 21 years old or something like that. Like, no offense to 21 years old. I was just thinking about how in 2004 I was I stayed out of the Carrie Dean thing and just voted for Kucinich. But (laughs) what I'm going to say is, do you have any predictions or any comments on this Avella-Palladino race?
1: I just think it's unfortunate because I don't think at the end of the day, it's in Tony Avella's political best interest to call out Palladino's racism. And I think hopefully he will ultimately win. I also think that there's a lot of talk about if we had Richard Lee be the nominee, if we would then lose to a Republican, because that happened with Dan Hollering. What happened was the Democrats nominated an Asian candidate who I don't think was as strong as Richard would have been. And I think that the conversation really kind of sickens me because I think in 2021, our district should be past that. You know what I mean? The idea that a Asian man isn't electable because basically all the racists will come out. And the thing that bothers me most about that conversation is why is that okay with you? There's all these like tacit admissions like, oh yeah, our neighborhood's totally racist. And it's like, okay, but are you going to do something about that? Are you going to call that out? You know, there's this like sense of, oh yeah, we're total racists, And, you know, but, you know, what can you do? You know, I'm I'm one of those awful people who talks about this stuff at like barbecues, and maybe that's why I don't get invited to a lot. But at a certain point, it's like that they might be giants. I can't stand here listening to you and your racist friends. At what point as a community do we say enough's enough? So I don't have very high hopes for the Avella-Palladino uh, race. I think to dismiss Vicky is a mistake in that she definitely has a constituency and she definitely has a group of people who really love her and really love her fight and her whole shtick, I guess. And I think the other thing that's really interesting is as feminists, right? That's how I feel like we know the feminist cause has moved really far, right? Because on no planet do I feel compelled to vote for the woman in the race because my daughters sometimes will ask me that, like, did the women will Did the girl win? Because they're still scarred from Hillary. Like, you know, Aww. even with uh, Catherine Garcia, like, did the girl win? Do girls win? And it's like,
0: yeah, sometimes not this time. That's interesting to me. Like, if I had a daughter and I and I lived a few miles over, like, what would I say about Vicky Felidino? That's an interesting conversation. Like, I've been very clear that uh, choice feminism doesn't make sense because you can choose to go out and murder people. And that's not, feminist so just a, you slice it down to like its most basic uh, form but I, I think you bring up another good point too but
1: and by the way at some point we will have to have the conversation about like feminism and work and other stuff yeah we got sidetracked with politics no no right?
0: no I think this was this was really great talking to you about this and is yeah, there is there fun. any organization that you'd like people to check out on the internet either about your work or a cause or something that you support something interesting to you
1: couple come to mind. Common Point Queens and La Hernada have been doing excellent work with food insecurity in Northeast Queens. We're running a diaper bank. You know, that work is incredibly important. And then also from the leftist perspective, the Black Socialists of America and Cooperation Jackson are doing excellent, excellent work in the co-op space. And those are some folks to check out.
0: Great. Thank you so much. You can find me on Twitter at MissCherryPie, and we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour. Or, you know, do a Google for Patreon of Feminist Coffee Hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music
1: on SoundCloud.